Hi, I'm Stephen Carter, the editor of Sunstone Magazine. Like you, I'm addicted to blogs and podcasts that explore Mormon themes, but I also want to be with people, the kind who are as curious about history, theology, and culture as I am. That's why I've been going to Sunstone Symposiums for more than a decade now. I want to explore new ideas. I want to see Mormonism from other perspectives. And, I'll admit it, I want to have lunch with my Mormon studies heroes. Sunstone has some great symposiums coming up, including one in Berkeley on January 30th, one in Mesa, Arizona on February 20th, and our first ever international conference in Birmingham, England from February 26th to 28th. Some of our speakers will include Wendy Montgomery, Dale McGowan, Natasha Helfer-Parker, Christian Moore, Lindsay Hansen-Park, and John DeLynn. Visit sunstone.org to learn more about our symposiums and magazine. Come join us. It's good to be together. Welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Just to let you know, you can find this podcast on its host site, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. If you're a premium subscriber, that's the only place you can access the premium episodes. You have to sign in with your username and password and then click premium episodes. You can also find the podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher. And please leave a review at those sites if you listen there. The higher the review, the further up the list the podcast moves in being accessible to other people who have not heard of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Also, support the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber today or visiting the bookstore to purchase books that will help you in your faith transition. Thank you. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Kathy Escobar, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. It's great to be with you, Bill. Good. Glad to have you on. Kathy Escobar is the author of the book Faith Shift. We've talked about it a few times here on the podcast. Kathy, you don't know this, but we are going to do kind of like a little online book club discussion using your book. Uh, we've got several uh, listeners to the podcast who are going to be on in about a month, and we're going to kind of take the book apart and chapter by chapter kind of go over it so that uh, those who are listening who are in the middle of this faith shift can kind of discuss what this uh, what this journey means for them. Oh, that's so fun. I had no idea. Happy. That's exactly what I hoped for the material right there. Because it really isn't meant, I mean, it, it can work alone, it's fine, but it's not meant to do alone. It's really meant to somehow converse with other people who understand some of the same feelings together. Yeah, yeah. And so tonight what I wanted to do, and, and you and I have talked about this, Kathy, but for the listeners, we're going to try and maybe reverse the roles just a little bit and, and allow, uh, Kathy to, to use her book kind of as a backdrop and to kind of just talk with, you know, kind of have a conversation with me about my faith journey and kind of just bring out some of the concepts maybe that, uh, that you hit on in the book. And so maybe with that, Kathy, if you just want to give us kind of a, a brief bio of yourself and then, uh, any thoughts, I guess, from that point, or we'll just go right into you asking any questions. Okay, that sounds great. It's fun to interview you. Um, the uh, well, my, you know, a lot of my work is really out there and for the public to see on my blog. But the way that this particular book came about is that I had experienced my own faith deconstruction, coming from a conservative evangelical background. Um, and when things kind of went crazy for me, I didn't know where to turn. And so I started writing online. I started meeting people online um, that had experienced some similar feelings. And 
the weirdest part of the whole thing is that we feel so alone in the process. I, I kind of felt like I was the only one. I did have a few friends. I was fortunate to have a few friends in real life. Um, but it still felt lonely and scary to talk about some of these things. So out of that, I mean, I have been blogging for a long time, but wrote this series on my blog about rebuilding after deconstructing and trying to just give some language to what it might look like to kind of find our way forward when a lot of formerly um, tightly held beliefs started to come apart what that meant and the structures that we were in. And so it, it kind of evolved from there, but this really is my most favorite material. So it's always fun to talk about it, especially with someone like you that connects with a lot of um, listeners and readers who are experiencing some sort of faith shift where things that once sort of fit perfectly um, start to come apart. Um, so in the beginning of the book, this will be fun for me to hear from you. And the, you know, I just kind of start with this idea that um, you're not crazy and you're not alone because we feel that way um, a lot of times. Like we might be the only one or what's wrong with me? You know, am I out of God's favor? Am I rebelling? All these kinds of things that go through our heads. So I would just love to hear from you kind of what that, you know, if you experience that feeling of kind of feeling crazy or alone and and definitely in in Mormonism, because of the tight knit community and the really the the um, conformity uh, of the belief system, like how it can be really rattling when you start to um, change from what the whole entire rest of the group is believing and thinking and living. Yeah, you know, thank you. And uh, to kind of delve into that idea, I think Mormonism is prime ground for these kinds of things to happen. And, and I think it's for several reasons. Uh, Mormonism, in many ways, kind of points to itself as a restoration church, being that it is the, the true church of God being restored to the earth. And hence, we look back at the Old Testament, for instance, and we'll see the promises made to God's covenant people, the Israelites. And Mormons will very much see themselves in that same kind of light. And And so there's kind of this a little bit of this exclusionist uh, idea. So right the in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites saw themselves as God's covenant people and they separated themselves from everybody else. Mormonism has done the same thing and in some ways kind of pushed to do that because of the persecution it it went through in the 1800s where it it was moved, you know, kicked out essentially from New York, moved to Kirtland, Ohio, kicked out from there, moved to Missouri, moved to Illinois and finally ended up in the in Salt Lake Valley uh, out in Utah. And and so the church has been very much kind of like a circle the wagons and protect our own. And in that kind of dynamic, it, it's very easy for a group to kind of stay so tight-knit and so closed off in some ways that it really wasn't open to the ideas that were going on outside of itself. And so as maybe the rest of the world was progressing in various things, Mormonism has kind of held on to a lot of lines in the sand. And... When I combine that with uh, with the idea that oftentimes in Mormonism we had very so in Mormonism of course we see our leaders as prophets seers and revelators the the top leader in the church is seen as a prophet his he carries the title of prophet seer and revelator he certainly is viewed by church members as the mouthpiece of God and underneath him are are a group of apostles and these men are also seen as uh, being mouthpieces of God. And having that, throughout our history, we've had some of those leaders be very dogmatic, very rigid in the way they framed our faith. 
And they've given answers on subjects and on ideas and, and on questions that perhaps God has never really himself spoken on. Just one example would be evolution. And in a faith that draws a lot of lines, that sees itself as having leaders who are the mouthpiece for God and having leaders who have been very rigid and dogmatic, what's happened is in our community, we've kind of created this idea that there can be um, answers to every question and that everybody, if they just read this book or that book, can can essentially solve every problem and understand the, the complexities of any issue. And as I went through kind of my beginning to kind of discover how messy religion is, the best way to describe it is that house of cards just kind of comes apart. And when that happens, and I know we'll go into that in depth kind of as we go along, but when that happens, you're absolutely right. You feel alone because you're the only person in the congregation who's begun to think about these deeper ideas. At least you're the only one you know of. I think as you get into this, there's usually another person or two who says, hey, I'm thinking those same things. But at the very onset, it's a very lonely place to be and you really have no place to turn. In fact, I'll even say a lot of Mormons turn to the online community where they can find a lot more people who think like them and who have gone through the same process because to find these people in your own ward, uh, specifically with leadership, when leadership often are the ones who, they're the ones who the, the higher up see as being faithful and towing the line, so they're the ones that end up a lot of times with these leadership callings. Uh, it's It can be a lonely place. Yeah, no, and that's where, you know, the, the commonalities are so strong and that's why online is, um, so healing for so many people because they, they might have tested the waters. First, you just think nobody thinks that or you maybe test the waters with somebody and you get a lot of pushback or just, you know, what's, you know, blank stares and nervous twitches and all those kinds of things that make you uncomfortable. And so people need a place to talk about it. That's why your online community is so important. Um, to have a place to do that. And I know that I know a lot of little networks and pockets of online communication. And that was really helpful to me too. I met some wonderful people that I'm friends with now in real life and have stayed connected to that we're kind of all experiencing similar things nine years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that as, as the world kind of becomes smaller and by that, I mean that we get to know people from different cultures, different life experiences. You know, you can go on Facebook and you're met face to face with, with friends of your friends who, who take different stances on issues. I think as more ideas, more, more awareness of what differences others have kind of come into view, I think the more we'll all kind of ask ourselves if there's other ways to think of things outside of the way that we've been taught. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's going to be really fascinating to watch over time. And I agree with you, this idea of sort of the more closed the system is, the more likely for shifts to happen um, over time with a changing world, with, you know, kind of our culture really uh, faster, wider, more connected. Um, you know, things just change. And so a closed system, I think it, it it's just it is a recipe um for for this to happen well you know one of the things that is like a major theme in the book is this whole idea of less religion but more freedom um and you know for so many of us you know any kind of faith system was supposed to bring freedom somehow and then the rules and the um doctrinal beliefs and then the structures created didn't create freedom um created 
you know, bondage in different ways. And so I'm just kind of wondering for you what that sort of started to happen in your journey where you were like, I, 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 something's got to change. I need, I need freedom. Um, and then what it kind of looked like to not have people around you, um, that were thinking and feeling the same thing. Yeah. You know, uh, again, I don't know how evangelical Christianity sets this up in terms of how members of the church would share their testimony or how they would share their their um their awareness of Christ and what they what they thought of him and his gospel but in mormonism it, it's very prevalent to say i know and there's this level of certitude this this certainty that members have and and once a month in mormon um, worship meetings, we have what's called a testimony meeting where members can stand up and essentially just share their testimonies and share their, their, their heartfelt expressions, I guess, of the Savior Jesus Christ. And what happens almost to a T is that everyone gets up and they say the same four or five things. And those things are that I know that Jesus Christ lives. I know that Joseph Smith was his prophet. I know the Book of Mormon is his scripture. And so the first thing I kind of had to combat when I, I kind of began to go down this rabbit hole was I began to think of my own testimony and think of it differently. And I realized right away that the things I thought I knew five years earlier, I no longer had certainty of. And so this less religion, more freedom, I I think, again, when everybody around you is expressing things in one way and your your understanding is telling you to, to see it differently. Your your study, your insight as you've gone through the scriptures or gone through historical scholarship, you need more room than that. And so it's kind of uncomfortable for someone to stand up and say, hey, I don't know. I just hope it's all true. That would be met with a very awkward, as you put it earlier, kind of the eyes twitching and people becoming very uncomfortable with uh, with testimonies expressed that way. I'll also say, too, when it comes to having more freedom, I I find it intriguing as I get into conversations with people now, Kathy, when I talk to them about what is Scripture and the traditional viewpoint of Scripture, right? It's the literal word of God given to his prophets, and they've written it down essentially verbatim. And and yet as we begin to kind of study the gospel, again, looking into historical scholarship, I think we realize right away that Scripture, we may be defining Scripture differently than what the reality of Scripture is. And and so as we go through things like Scripture and, and just kind of saying, okay, the community sees it this way, but I can't make that work. I need more room than that. And so as you put it, you know, we I think less religion. And by that, I, I assume you mean, and I, I'd love to have your insight, but I assume you mean less lines in the sand, less absolute answers uh, on things that we really have no way of being certain of. And as you put it, more freedom, more ability to kind of weave our own path and, and hold our own views. Um, I'll share one uh, before I kind of let you talk about that section of the book in in the sense of what you mean by that. But I know reading like the creation story with Adam and Eve and the fall, I took that story very literally. And uh, I just have come to a place now where I allow it to be allegory. I allow it to be figurative. And I think many people who go through this faith journey do that. They just kind of take apart what everybody's told them and, and put it back together in a new way. And they have to have that room to, to put it together as their conscience kind of dictates. Yeah. You know, the thing is, this is that, that, um, rigidity piece when not, you know, from my, from the stories in the gospels and Jesus, you know, who's central, central, um, the, he was breaking down 
all, he broke down the law. You know, he fulfilled the law. And that's, you know, in our theology, he fulfilled the law. And when that happened, then, you know, all of the pharisaical things that they held to be so important weren't important anymore. And, but nobody could get their head around that, you know, and we still can't get our head around that. And so, you know, all these years later, um, the sort of the, our humans quest to sort of form these religious rules that keep people bound. Um, I just, you know, I personally felt like Jesus was pushing up against and that we just don't under our, our little brains and our humanness can't, um, get our heads around freedom. And so we're always making them because it keeps things safer and more comfortable. And so, and, you know, more manageable. It really is, man, it's just a lot more manageable. Um, when everybody sort of believes the same thing, follows the same rules, there's sort of things on the outside that you can point to. You know, when you do this, when you go to church, when you read your scriptures a certain way, when you raise your family a certain way, you know, things on the outside. And, um, you know, Jesus always, always was talking about the inside of our cup. And a man is always wanting to do this outside of the cup thing. And so that's a little bit how I see sort of religion versus freedom. And um, it manifests in all kinds of ways because it's it's scary uh, to not have it manageable. And I think that, you know, that's in the faith tradition that I come from. You know, Jesus was scary. Uh, what he, the kind of freedom that he was bringing was scary. And I think, you know, kind of moving through in the book, a big piece of the, the story is the, the early part of our faith. You know, and I call it in the book fusing and this idea that there are things that you need to learn that are the tenets of your faith. And I think that this crosses all of them. Um, you know, the things that are, sort of coming to believe and learning, you know, important bedrock things that are foundational and then practicing, doing, um, serving, being part of a community, a church. And, um, you know, in the book, I call that fusing. And those core values are certainty and conformity and affiliation. Um, that's, you know, in the faith tradition that I'm from, evangelical Christian, it's really strong. But when I talk to people across other ones, everyone has their fusing season um, and where that is just really works. And I think what's really important is it still works for a lot of people. I mean, obviously in Mormonism and in evangelical Christianity, too, lots of people are fine in the fusing stage, completely fine. And um, so the questions that you're asking or the questions that I was asking and still ask and other people I know are like, they're just not asking them. And so I think that it's important to know that, like, and respect that. That is a little piece for me, you know, not always trying to make everybody be where I am, but have it be okay that this is kind of where I am and what God has stirred up in me. Right. And so I'm just kind of wondering for you, you know, a little bit like what that whole fusing thing, because that feels to me like so strong in Mormonism, certainty and conformity and affiliation is big in, um, in evangelical Christianity, but there's lots of strains and it feels like Mormonism even has that a little more packed in harder to leave. Yeah. Mormonism certainly gives you this, this level of comfort. I mean, I joined the church as a, as an older teenager. I had little to almost no religious background prior to that. And, and as I began to 
take uh, what they call the missionary discussions from our from our missionaries and they would teach the lessons on the basics of the church it i just found it awesome here's this faith that just has all these answers to all of life's trickiest questions and you're right it I kind of make the comment that it's hard to see the the forest from the trees, that in the middle of all of that, it's just so beautiful and everything really does fit so well together. I I would relate back. I know you're familiar with Fowler and, and his stages of faith. As I think about some of the different um, theorists behind uh, how we progress through faith, I think we all need that stage. As you point out, it's not a bad thing. Almost everybody kind of even ends up there and, and very few people kind of move beyond that. I think it's a safe place to be, and there is this level of certainty, and and you aim for that. It's, you find joy in finding the answers to every question, and I think that's different than where we're at today. I, I think you would probably say the same thing, but I find joy in the questions themselves, whereas the questions used to just nag me, and I needed the answer to them. Uh, so yes, Mormonism certainly gives you this framework of of certainty. Um, there's been there's been books written by Latter Day Saint authors uh, who also happen to be leaders in the church who have almost written like an encyclopedia type book and said, okay, any word in Mormonism you need to know the answer uh, to what it means and how it plays a role in the plan of salvation. You just look it up. And I used to thrive in that. I loved it. And uh, so yeah, I think that people who are there, we certainly shouldn't try to rock their boat or move them out of that, uh, at least not quickly. And and I think that people need to kind of move at their own pace. And again, as we're saying, a lot of people just end up there. And so it's not, there's not a negative thing to being there. It's just that now that we've moved past that, some of us, we also have to kind of find room for ourselves to kind of coexist. Right. And the part I really can relate to, you know, in, in fusing, like I was so good at it, honestly, like I was a really good Christian. And um, when I say good, I just on the outside, like I knew, and I was not raised in a Christian family. And so I came to faith separate from the system um, in a personal way. And then sort of, went all in and that part of performance was just such a big thing. And so like what was on the outside, you know, doing, serving, being, you know, the, the one learned the fastest and tried the hardest and, you know, all those things. It just has so many of those elements that to be honest, I kind of thrived in because it was tangible. And so I, I really know why people don't want to give it up because it, it sort of feeds something, it does feed that belonging feel and praise and sort of that we can manage it and figure it out. But you know what happens to a lot of us, I know what happened to you and it certainly happened to me and lots of other people is that something starts to shift. This is the stage after fusing and it looks different for everybody. Um, you know, for me, it actually happened years and years ago. So my daughter's 21. I have five kids and my oldest is 23. And then I have a daughter that's 21, another boy that's almost 19 and twins that are 15. And when my daughter was a baby, I was in a group in a conservative Baptist church. Um, but it was kind of a progressive group way back then that started to speak honestly about our real lives and what we were really thinking and feeling about God and ourselves and other people. And, um, it was the first time where I started to be honest. My insides started to come out because my outside was very put together. And, um, what I found when we were all doing that together is that we were all more human and that everybody struggled, but kind of in the church system, we were in, that was a sign of weakness. 
and a lack of faith. And so that was a long time ago that I started shifting, but I didn't really know what to do with it all the way because, you know, on the whole, it's just what everybody did. Everyone around me were in conservative Bible-based churches. Um, But I think what I always say in shifting, it's like when you start to ask questions, as it progressed for me, I started singing songs and kind of wondering about some of the words. I started asking questions, you know, kind of like you alluded to in terms of the scriptures, like, is this really a hundred percent without one single flaw? Because when I really know how it was crafted, it seems like there could have been a lot of mistakes along the way. <laughs> and, and there were things that didn't make it in and there was a bent against women. And there were some things related to the scriptures that started to cause me to, to shift and ask questions. So like in shifting to me, it's like, rumbly questions and doubts and so I'm kind of wondering what that looked like for you when sort of things started to um just uh, the ground underneath you you know starts to shake and the foundation starts to crack what that looked like for you yeah you know of course we already talked about this Mormonism is very um authority based and so as you grow up in the church as you as you live your life in Mormonism you trust in the leaders to, to give you God's word. And I think in some ways, you know, evangelical Christianity looks at the Bible, for instance, as the literal, uh, as a book of scripture be taken literally, as literally God's word. And I think it sets up that same kind of paradigm where you just, for a long time, find safety in trusting that completely. And so as I trusted in the leaders of the church to be prophets, seers, and revelators, everything was smooth. And all of a sudden, you said it, you wake up one day and you begin to ask yourself questions. You begin to say to yourself, essentially, you know, I no longer am going to place my authority outside of myself. I'm going to place it inward. And I'm going to begin to trust what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling about some of these issues. And I know perhaps, you know, Bart Ehrman, for instance, who is uh, a former Christian, he's critical of the scriptures. He paints Jesus as uh, as certainly not the Messiah and as just kind of a a rebellious person of his day who happens to draw people unto him. And, and much like the rest of Christianity has their Bart Ehrmans, Mormonism certainly has lots of critics out there of the faith. And the, the trouble is those critics are sharing, even though I don't necessarily you know trust all their conclusions, the critics are sharing information and facts that most Mormons have never heard before. And as we listen to some of the things that they're talking about, whether it be Joseph Smith and his polygamy, whether it be on some of the ways that we got the scriptures that we use, and as they're sharing those facts and as you begin to say, oh, that can't be true, you begin to go back and look those things up. You you may read books. You may check out online articles. And what I realized was, wait a minute, the critics have something here. They're sharing information that based on the original sources is true. And for some reason, nobody ever chose to tell me this before. And this changes everything. It changes the way we frame the questions that are out there. It it changes essentially the entire dynamic of how we look at how all the pieces go together. And the moment I can remember, the moment I begin to kind of let those questions seep in, and, and all of a sudden I just remember waking up one morning and going, you know, this does not fit together the way they told me it did. And uh, as that foundation begins to kind of crack... You begin to kind of question everything. I know that um, in those initial stages of, of that foundation cracking, probably the feeling I felt the most was a loss of trust in those authorities that I had uh, up to that point 
had trust in. And along with that then came anger and sadness and frustration. And uh, I just, I had to kind of come to terms that things just didn't fit like I thought they did. Yeah, you know, it, it is, it's amazing how familiar um, the stories are. And I, the thing about shifting that I think is important, and I, I've sort of been talking about this at these space shift processing parties that I've been doing live in a few cities. So I've had a chance to kind of have people engage with the material live. And um, what, what seems to come up, and I, you know, I say it in the book, but I kind of say it again here is that there's something about shifting that's a little in our control in a way. It's like we can sort of manage it and um, and navigate it. I mean, it's scary. It's weird and it feels foreign, but it's it's a little bit manageable. And so what a lot of people do is then they return because you just kind of like even what you just said about the authority. You might start to question, mistrust the authority, but you're like, well, maybe they do know, you know, maybe I'm wrong or you know, maybe I just need to kind of get back in line and. Other people are fine and, you know, this happens a lot. It's like one spouse starts to shift and another doesn't. It's like, ah, it's just too complicated. And, you know, so that's what I think a lot of people do. What do I do about the kids? You know, if I really lean into some of this, what's this all going to mean? And so people return. And, um, and, you know, I think that that's just valid. It's a little bit like talking about, um, Using, you know, it's just where people are. And I think at the beginning of writing the book and, you know, even where I was a few years ago, I would really have like a bad judgment towards people who returned. Um, and that is not, you know, judging is never good. And so I think something has changed inside of me to just respect. Sometimes it's just too hard. Those little questions and doubts and starting to kind of have the scriptures unravel and those kinds of things. It's just a little bit too much. And so yeah. people people return. Now, I don't know. Have you kind of seen that as you've been journeying with people? Like, you know, they're starting to ask questions, but it's like, I just return to safety because it's easier over there. Yeah. You know, personally, this played out that way. I, I didn't stay in that phase for very long, but there certainly was a stretch where everybody's telling you, well, if you just pray harder, you just read more scripture, or you just, you know, read different books and, and find better answers that all of a sudden you can kind of uh, make it work. Uh, there were people who just said, just focus on the basics, you know, just let go of all of these big questions. Uh, I've had people say, you know, the problem with those who fall away is they're just too, they think they're just too smart for the church. And, and I think those kinds of statements are almost kind of a, a tool of shaming used to kind of say, Hey, you don't want to be one of those, you know, get back in line. And I did that for a little while. I, I doubled down. I, I would read different church talks and if I found certain talks that you know I felt the spirit with uh, then I would just roll with that and, and for a while that did uh, that did pretty well but it didn't last for long um, I couldn't make it work there was there was simply too much distance between the the paradigm that everyone else was holding and what the the discovery of new information uh, had done to me so I do see that though with other latter-day saints and I think to a large extent, if you were to take a hundred people who have gone through this faith shift, I think all of us to some extent kind of take a little step back every now and then or try to retrench and say, okay, I'm at this new plateau. Let me see if I can stay here and assume that, okay, this is going to be a safe place to be and I can just hang out here until, until my life is over. But I think, again, those of us who are kind of seeking out new truth, we're reading new things, it's... 
it's kind of a, a one step back, two step forward process. And we're really never at a plateau for very long. Yeah, I think that is so true. I, I really like that thought of plateau that we want that because it's so messy. I mean, all this is so uncomfortable. And so, and we're just creatures of comfort. And so, you know, anything like, all right, well, maybe I could just hold on to this much and kind of stay here forever. And I do think that, um, that sort of this weird thing in our head and even in our heart that we want to be so and that really truly human beings are meant to continue to grow and transform. And, you know, I would always say be formed more and more into Christ likeness and, you know, so you don't get to plateau on that one. And so, um, but we want to, because we just want some kind of smoother sailing. Uh, but you know, what happens to, um, those of us that, you know, shifting and, um, it's sort of within our control and, you know, then the returning, but, sort of the bulk of the book to me, and I had to lead up to those things in the material for a reason. If I was just doing it on my own and kind of where I blog from, I would just start at that unraveling because it's almost like in one sentence you could get there. Um, but the stage of unraveling is really, really important in this process because, and it's different from shifting, as I said, because shifting is just kind of rumbly, but unraveling is when like the whole thing starts to feel like it's coming apart and um and the way i kind of draw it in the book i draw this diagram and i do it not to kind of say that this is the formula but to give language to it and you know i hope kind of and it'll be fun if you guys interact with it together in your um group how people would draw it differently or describe it differently but the uh, put different words on it but unraveling is where we just start to lose it all. You don't really have control over it. And that's what happened to me um, uh, nine years ago. You know, I was on a big church staff and just things went haywire. And I ended up in a big conflict with leadership over some really important issues about the poor and marginalized and power and women and all kinds of things. And um, it wasn't like that was brand new. I had been up against those things for a long time, but it's almost like it came to a head. And when I, when that happened, like all my trust and authority, all my trust in the system that I had given myself to like all in for a long time came apart. And I think that happens to a lot of us. And in unraveling, what I talk about in the book is just, you know, kind of lose beliefs first, things like you've already shared about the scriptures, about the structures. And when you do that, then you do lose the structures, like the safety of a church and the friends, the relationships that are part of that. And um, it's a huge loss. And then after that, you lose your identity um, for a lot of us. Like, who are, who am I now if I'm not this good Christian woman that has everything together and sort of leads Bible studies and does all these things a certain way? And so um, in my experience talking to a lot of people, like the loss is the big part of unraveling, you know, so just kind of thinking for you, I mean, you know, that's why I like have a lot of respect. I have an extra respect for Mormons who are walking through this faith deconstruction process because I think we all had a lot to lose. But I, I kind of think in some ways you guys have more because it was such a tight system that the loss seems to be potentially greater. Yeah, Mormonism, I don't, I, and again, I haven't had experience with other Christian denominations or other religions beyond just some college classes and attendance to a church here or there. 
But yeah, Mormonism thrives on community. It's my tribe. And, and while I've managed, at least to this point, to get through this faith shift and, and still be a faithful, participating Latter-day Saint, there was a moment where I was ready to call it quits. I was ready to throw in the towel. And I was actually serving as the, the local bishop, the ecclesiastical leader of the congregation when this, when this all kind of went down. And there was just a moment where I was just sitting at my computer desk thinking I would email the leader higher up than me, the stake president, and just let him know that, hey, I, I no longer think this is true and I'm ready to just call it quits. Would you please release me from my calling so I can just kind of drift into the background? And that causes you to think a lot about what it is you are losing. I mean, maybe it sounds simple, right? You'll just leave one church and just go find another church that, that's beliefs are more in line with you. But, but it's different than that. At least in Mormonism, it's like leaving your tribe. It's, it's, it's a huge loss as you think about all the relationships you have, the friends you have. Mormonism requires so much of its members that you really don't have the time and, and energy to, to go out and find friends outside of the faith. So almost all of your connections, all of your friendships are within the church. And, and if you leave, it's not really set up in a way that everybody's going to say, Oh, we'll just all still hang out with Bill. And it's not that they're trying on purpose to, to shun you or to withdraw from you, but they're simply still busy doing those church things. And so you slowly kind of drift off into the background. Um, anyway, those are, those are some of my thoughts about it all coming apart. Well, so, um, really, you know, during the loss and I, that one thing that's really important to say is that everyone's time is different. We kind of want it to go quickly. And my experience is that it's not a month or two, you know, it's years sometimes. And, um, I think that that's that other piece. Like we have a desire to get to a better place as fast as possible. And so, um, the sort of letting ourselves grieve and that's a big piece of unraveling is grief and, um, and walking through those stages, um, of anger and of depression and, um, you know, bargaining and, and then ultimately acceptance, but they, it takes a long time. And so one of the things that feels really important in any grief process is really taking good care of our souls. And so, um, you know, that means just being gentle, you know, to me being gentle and, um, not rushing and giving myself a lot of grace and, um, expecting it to be painful instead of sort of wanting to put my game face on and, um, and then, you know, doing some things that really are life giving when everything is so tied into the system. It, um, it's really scary, like to, you know, can I have fun apart from <laughs> church? Can I have life outside of these, just these relationships or these beliefs? So I don't know what that's like for you taking good care of yourself in the process. Yeah. It's, it's obviously something that we all need to do. Um, I think that it's very easy to kind of just, just lose it through this process and just almost feel shamed and feel less than as you're unable to put it together like the rest of your community. It's almost like you feel like it all fell apart and it's only kind of on the other side of this whole thing that you realize that you've actually moved forward rather than dropped off. And I do want to ask you a couple of things here. You, This chapter I think is huge, which is chapter seven of your book. We're talking today with Kathy Escobar, author of the book Faith Shift. In chapter seven, you talk about soul care for unravelers. And, and one of the things you say is expect the unexpected. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful statement because I can reflect on my own journey and see that. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I just mean that, you know, there's not, one is, it's just not predictable all the way. And so, you know, if we wanted to kind of fall in line, like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it to the other side, it's not how it works. And I think expecting the unexpected, another piece of that is being open to finding life in ways that might be surprising also. And so, you know, in my, in my culture, um, you know, a big piece was you sort of listen to certain music or you attended church in a certain way. And, you know, that's what brought life and, um, really being open to, you know, I, for me, like I found God in the movies and in music and in being outside. And, you know, that's unexpected. Like that wasn't where I was taught I would find, find God. You know, I was taught it was, you know, in church and in the word of God. And that was it. That was where God spoke. And so I think really being open to um, possibility is a piece of that. And the other part is just like kind of rolling with it and being present instead. So that's a little bit of the unexpected is you start to notice things that you maybe didn't see and we didn't um, have our eyes open for and to enjoy them and embrace them. And so, you know, kind of, Going, being tender and being open to me kind of go with that. And sometimes like we want to white knuckle it or, you know, it's honestly, cause it was a really painful process for me, but it still is. I mean, I hit it still. I, I was telling some people, I just, um, you know, in talking about face shifts so much in this season, um, you know, I bump up against it. I've lost friends and I don't fit into certain groups and I don't get invited to certain things. And, you know, there are these things that happen when you change and um, it can feel really lonely. And so I feel like a little bit of like rolling with that and accepting that as a natural part of grief. I mean, grief is not predictable. And so you hit it in certain moments. And I think being open to that is really important. Yeah. And you talked about kind of losing friendships and losing, losing kind of your place in the community. I can tell you, you know, in Mormonism, everybody in the congregation has a chance to give a, a sermon or a talk once in a while. And it's, it's strange, right? Cause if I get done giving a talk, there's three or four people every time who walk up and say, I really appreciate that talk. That made me think about things I'd never thought of before. But at the same time, if I'm in a class and I go on for more than 30 seconds when the teacher's asked a question and I'm, and I'm presenting the uncomfortable answer that's like, Oh no, we can't really think about it that way. You can, you can feel people putting their distance between you and them emotionally. You can feel people kind of pushing you away. And, and as you point out, if, if you're going to try and just white knuckle it and hang on, it's going to be a really tough process. The other thing you mentioned in chapter seven was you said, consider the possibility your soul is not at risk. And I think this is a huge one because religion essentially says every church you go to, except for maybe the universalist church. Every church you go to says we are the brand of Christianity that uh, that has a greater portion of the truth. And if you walk away from us, your salvation is at risk. But uh, as you say, we need to kind of turn that on its head. Uh, speak about that for a moment. Yeah, you know, and this is like every, you know, every sort of conservative evangelical on the planet is going to push against that because it's like how far is too far. And I just, I believe somewhere down deep um, that God's got us on this one. And so if we can take 
eternal salvation off the, you know, this is coming from as an evangelical Christian off the table and trust that um, our soul is not at risk. And that is like, it frees us up to, um, to walk forward. And I actually think it compels us towards God. And that's where that's this is fear thing that's underneath all this and so pervasive and why friends and family flip out, you know, when they experience us having a face shift, it's, it's all fear based. It's all fear based and shame based. And so when fear and shame comes out of that, and I, you know, I just really believe strongly that that wasn't the big idea here. And um, so I think taking that off the table and just trusting that God has us somehow and that really, I think they're respecting the sincerity. And I think about it with my children, you know, and I'm human. I'm not God. But I, you know, I love them. I've got them. I've got them no matter what. No matter what they think and believe and struggle with and ask questions about and doubt and reject against. And, you know, they're my kids. And um, so I, I, I translate that over um, in that, and then scripturally, you know, in, in the book of Romans, it's a big one. It's that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so for me, that brings comfort. I know for some it, it, um, it, it feels rattling or hard to believe, but I think taking that off the table and respecting that, um, God's got us and trusting that process can be really freeing. I know it's a stretch and I think it's an extra stretch when there's really a strong shame based message in there. Um, but we, you know, we teach a class, uh, my friend Phyllis Mathis and I, um, called walking wounded hope for those hurt by the church. And this is a big piece of it. And just trying to help us all sort of hold that it's possible and, um, that, we're just fine and that this is just part of our formation and transformation and God is right there in it and with us. Most people I know are not rejecting God. Um, they're not losing faith. They're losing beliefs and there's two, it's two different things. Yeah, that's absolutely amen. True to that. I, uh, I wanted to just mention just for a second that one of the things I think is very helpful and I think it's something your book represents. I think it's something the class you just talked about represents, but that everybody needs to find someone that they can talk to, confide in, uh, acknowledge that they're having all of this go on and have someone just validate kind of the, the, the agony of that journey. And it is nice once in a while, in Mormonism, we'll come across a leader who who kind of gets it. And I just want to read to you a quote. The listeners will already be familiar with this, but I thought I'd at least give you kind of a taste of, of one Mormon leader kind of sharing his thoughts. He says, uh, this is Marlon Jensen. He was the former church historian. He was also a member of the 70, which was just underneath that top tier of leadership. He said, uh, when someone, let me see here, but often in the church, when someone comes in with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer, Number two, he snaps and says, get in line. Don't question the prophet. Get back and do your home teaching. And that isn't helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better, I think, to be more sympathetic and empathetic, to draw out of these people where they are coming from and what's brought them to the point they are at, what they have read and what they are thinking is, and try to understand them. Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time. But beyond that, I think we really need to figure out a way to live a little bit with people who may never get completely settled. And I just thought to myself, if every leader responded in that way, 
wouldn't a lot more people hang around rather than feel like they're being pushed out? Oh the door? my gosh, there's no question. In fact, I just had a conversation. Your your quote made me think of it because I was talking about Facebook with a couple of pastors yesterday online, and you know they said, "So how should pastors respond?" You know, when people come to them with these questions, and I said, "You know, it's actually not super complicated." But one out of a hundred in our faith tradition do it, and that is just listen. <laughs> just listen and acknowledge. Right. And, um, and, you know, the best part about with true listening is actually not trying to scripturize or fix or give advice or relieve our anxiety by trying to solve it. It's like people really feel heard when they're, they're just someone listens to them and um and to trust god to work and that's our little human craziness that kicks in as we just have all this anxiety for people and so yeah it would be so different i mean and in our you know evangelical christianity people are leaving i mean the floodgates have opened and they are leaving the church and um and it makes me so sad because it really doesn't have to be quite so crazy um but no one can find that comfort and space you know kind of that sacred space that just gives more room i mean the best imagery i have is just like expanding the space so it can hold it and we just uh, our leaders and our systems hold everything so tightly with so much fear and anxiety Right, right. And the way to keep them, I mean, they think the way to keep them is by kind of pushing people to conform. But the reality is the more room you give people, the more likelihood that they're going to hang around uh, as they're going through this. I We've gone through the first uh, seven chapters of your book. I just want the listeners to be aware that there's 15 chapters, I think, in total. And so we've only kind of covered just uh, maybe half the book at most. But I did have one more question before you, before we let you go. Uh, again, we're talking with Kathy Escobar, author of the book Faith Shift, Finding Your Way Forward When Everything You Believe Is Coming Apart. And I like that you said that it's not a matter of losing your faith. It's a matter of losing your beliefs. And I think the more we can help people kind of discern that, the better. I want to end by asking you, and again, I, I assume you're familiar with Fowler and his stages of faith and, and the way your book kind of paints this picture of going through this faith shift, coming out the other side, having deconstructed your faith, having put it back together. Are there churches out there that cater to this this way that we've put things together on the other side? Is there Are there churches that welcome this kind of nuance and complexity in the way each member on an individual basis puts it together? I think it's tricky. Yeah, no, I definitely have, you know, a lot of friends who are pastoring a different kinds of alternative communities, progressive Christian communities um, that are uh, more inclusive communities, ways for people to hold the space. It's still tricky to them. It's tricky to do because there's, you know, even our, the faith community that I co-pastor, you know, there's not everybody in our community has had a radical faith shift, but everyone's on the fringe of something in order to be in our community. And it's hard to hold because when you have sort of that certainty and conformity and affiliation is so much easier. And so to hold a, um, a community with more freedom and mystery and diversity, um, it's, it's trickier, but yeah, I mean, at least in our strain of Christianity, there's, there are a lot of places cropping up. Online communities have been really healing for people. I'm still a huge proponent of in life and in the flesh. You know, I believe that like you need healing community, um, in 
person, but I, I mean, I believe in online. I think it's wonderful, but I don't think it can fully replace what it is eye to eye and heart to heart and, you know, people in the same room together. Um, but it is tricky. And I think, you know, just kind of in closing is I, we covered a lot of ground in this conversation that the last third of the book is really about rebuilding something. Um, you know, some people cut all the way. I call it severing. Some people just take a break for a while. Um, but some, you know, in it become agnostic, atheists, you know, really walk away all the way. But more people that I know kind of want to rebuild something. It just looks so different. And that really, you know, when you guys process the book together or those of you out there that are listening that end up reading it, it just talks about ways to move forward um, slowly and surely and in our own way. And that's really important. It's like every everyone's journey is different because everyone grew up in a different family and had different experiences, have different partners, have different um, ages and, you know, places that they live. And so people, I think that that's the piece you have to kind of, take your steps the way that you need to. And one piece of that is exploring possibilities for community and church. But there are a lot of things that you can do kind of on your own in terms of being open to new ways to experience God, spiritual disciplines, finding passions, and, um, you know, celebrating what was from the early stages, but leaving the other things behind. And um, so all that is really in the material. But I do, what I have, what I'm learning as I talk to more and more faith leaders and um, people who are thinking about maybe planting new churches, that's, you know, really popular and the faith tradition that I come from is it's is how to how to manage the tenderness of change and a wider view of God and the Bible and um, practice spiritual practices and it's tricky to do. I mean, systems are built on conformity, so it it is harder. It's a harder animal. Kathy Escobar, thank you so much for being on Mormon Discussion Podcast, and uh, I wish you the best. And as we go through the uh, the book uh, discussion, any comments I get back or anything, I'll shoot you Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, any way that I can interact. You know, I just love it that you guys are processing this. I really value what you're doing, Bill, and I um, I love to hear what it's stirring up. And, you know, that was always the idea. And I have a few Mormon friends. Their, their stories are in the book. And um, so it, it, you know, it's different. We do come from different strains, but it's fascinating to me how all the same things apply. And so there's definitely the right the deeper story going on here and I my hope for all of us is that we keep finding healing and finding hope and moving forward instead of getting stuck or resigning ourselves to something that um, doesn't hold our integrity or the deeper longing that we have for God and for change. Amen. Thank you. I will put a link to the book and uh, to the uh, classes that you have with this uh, episode. Uh, Kathy Escobar, thank you so much.